Good morning. Good morning. I'm Joel. For any of you joining us online or new here, uh, welcome to Heart City Church. Uh, we're back again in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19 today, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or on your devices. You also find it printed on page 5 in your bulletin for easy access. Now before we read our text, I want you to ask yourself this question. What are the two most important dates in your life? What are the two most important dates in your life? Now if I was speaking to an audience in Europe in the last half of the last century, date number one for you might be this, May 8th, 1945. It was the day that Nazi Germany surrendered to the Allied forces, bringing an end to six years of the most horrific warfare ever seen in our history. Six million Jews exterminated from their ethnicity. Sixty million died. May 8th, 1945 was known as V-Day, Victory Day, the end of evil. But V-Day had actually begun in a real way almost a year prior because of another day. Day number two, June 6, 1944, the Allies, they stormed the beaches of Normandy and gained a foothold in Europe that then would begin this reversal of all this evil. D-Day was the decisive blow that guaranteed that Hitler's reign of terror was coming to an end. Let me ask you, did the Axis forces, when they stormed the beaches of Normandy and gained a foothold, did they just throw down their weapons and say, oh, you won? No. They kept fighting for almost a whole nother year, even though the end was clearly near. The Allies, they had to battle day after day, block by block, house by house. They suffered losses. They suffered setbacks. They would lose territory that they didn't have to regain again. That time between those two dates was a time when they had to continue the business of warfare, the business of bringing freedom to people, business that was hard, but it was assured because the joy of V-Day was right around the corner. They didn't know when, but it was right around the corner. I use that illustration to start us off this morning because the two most important dates for the Christian are similar. They're not the day of your birth and the day of your death. Those are not the two most important days for the Christian. The two most important days on the Christian calendar are the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and his second coming. Thank you, Mark. His death and resurrection was D-Day. It guaranteed V-Day, his victorious return. And we find ourselves right now in this not yet time between these two dates. That's where we are, friends. So the second question that I want us to be asking ourselves as we come to this text, in this time between the two dates, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? Jesus is about to storm the beaches, and he's going to give us the answer in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. We'll read through verse 28. Actually, before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of the word and come humbly to this text. Father, um, we thank you 
you've given us everything and you've given us this sure word that is a guaranteed promise and I pray right now that you'll help us to to understand what you want us to learn from our Lord Jesus we pray that uh, only your word will be heard now and only your truth and help us to grasp it in this time between the two dates we pray this in Jesus name Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, by the way, they're still in Zacchaeus' house, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom they had, he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minus. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I remember in the late 90s, a rock band that became famous because they had a song that climbed the charts to number one. The band's name was Creed. Anybody remember the song? What's this life for? I'm not going to sing it, which some of you might be thankful for because I've been known to do that. But it starts off, hooray for a child who makes it through. If there's any way because the answer lies in you. They're laid to rest before they've known just what to do. Their souls are lost because they could never find what this life's for. And he repeats that line again and again. What's this life for? What's this life for? What is this life for? And I ask you this morning, what is this life for? It is the most important question you could be asking yourself. Scott Stapp, the lead singer of Creed, 
He actually wrote it because of a friend who had committed suicide. And that question, that song actually catapulted him to the top, into the limelight, but it catapulted him no closer to an answer. Money, fame, marrying Miss America, drugs, all the things you can get with lots of money and fame. It didn't reveal to Scott what his life was for. He actually made multiple attempts on his own life. I wonder where he is today. I don't know. I want us to think about there's a reason that that song, that that question, songs like that, why they resonate with our culture. We all have this longing in our hearts. We want to know what we're supposed to be doing between the date of our birth and the date of our death. We all want to live mattering lives, don't we? Modern poets know this, and they gather huge audiences with their ideas. I think it was in the 70s. Kansas just suggested, ah, we're just dust in the wind. I won't sing that one either. All we are is dust in the wind. Now, if that doesn't float your boat, well, you got five for fighting. Came out about 20 years ago with 100 years to live, where you can at least smile a little bit as you go through the old family album and look at all the pictures. That only goes so far, too especially if you don't have picture proof of your mattering life. Other artists like Monty Python, they see it all and they say, well, let's just laugh like it's all a comedy. Anybody remember the movie, The Meaning of Life? Yeah, and at the very end, they have an envelope and inside it holds the answer to the meaning of life. And they open the envelope, they pull out the slip. Are you ready for it? Ready for it? Here's the meaning of life, the answer we've all been waiting for. Try to be nice to people. Avoid eating fat. Read a book, good book every now and then. Get some walking in. And try to live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. And there you have it. In one sentence written 40 years ago, actually Monty Python captures what most modern Americans do believe what life is all about. Don't you see it everywhere? These are the platitudes we use. People stuck in these nice ideas, these platitudes in their search for significance. And these poets, they actually find it laughable because they know we've made no significant progress all the way prior to that. Have we made any progress in this in the last 40 years? I think it actually explains in large measure the pace of our current modern culture why so many people say so super busy today. It's easy to feel like you matter if you are constantly busy, if you can hold up your calendar and your agenda. It also helps us to avoid the question, right? But friends, we can't avoid it forever. What's this life for? In my soul, I know I want to have purpose. Am I living a mattering life? And how can I know? Scott said, Will my soul be lost because I never could find what this life is for? Well, if that's you this morning, I have good news. Anybody ready for the gospel? We discovered something wonderful last week. Jesus declared he was the son of God who became the son of man, and he came on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus knows that everyone is lost. And he is still seeking them today through the preaching of the gospel of his death and resurrection, whereby we can all be saved and enter glory. 
Jesus is seeking the rich and the poor, the healthy and the sick, the tall and the small. And there are actually two souls in the last couple of scenes that we've seen that could testify to this. Jesus came to Jericho, and the first thing Jesus did was find a blind beggar and heal him. And this man saw that moment, what his life was for. Remember what he did? He became a disciple. He immediately began to follow Jesus. And Jesus' next Jericho appointment was that fun scene. Children, do you remember the guy up in the tree? His name was Zacchaeus, a wee little man. And Zacchaeus welcomed Jesus into his life, and he too found life's meaning. And do you remember what Zacchaeus did at the very end of that story? He wrote a check for half of his wealth to give to the poor. What in the world came over Zacchaeus? He thought the meaning of life was making money. I mean, that's what he lived for. When Jesus came into his life, money was no longer life's meaning. Now, I know that Luke doesn't inform us in the text what Zacchaeus' face was like at that time, but I am confident that Zacchaeus was grinning from ear to ear. He was filled with great joy. He didn't give this up begrudgingly. Jesus had brought meaning and purpose to his life. Zacchaeus saw that life's meaning was to gladly serve his gracious Lord with all that he had been given. That right there, friends, sets us up for today's parable. Here's our take home. The life that matters is a life that gladly serves the Lord with all we've been given in those days between the two dates. The life that matters is the life that gladly serves the Lord with all that we've been given in the day between the days between the two dates. I think key to that is recognizing that all you have been given has been loaned to you. That's what the parable is actually telling us. God is both the loaner and the owner of all you have, and how you use that matters. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go ahead and look at our text, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Luke tells us three things. First, the scene at Zacchaeus' house prompts this parable. Second, they're near to Jerusalem. And third, the people in the Jesus parade, they're thinking the kingdom of God is right there. It's coming soon. It's any minute now. I really appreciate it when we're actually given the reason for a parable and I don't have to bang my head all week trying to figure it out. Jesus sees that his followers are getting excited as the caravan comes closer and closer to the capital. Talk is happening about the glory that's going to happen upon the arrival of the Jesus, the Messiah, into Jerusalem. And Jesus has been saying again and again and again, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And yet the people in the Jesus gang don't get it, do they? They have all the wrong expectations. They think Jesus is a military Messiah coming to bring in the kingdom of God immediately, coming to expel the Roman occupiers from the promised land. And why wouldn't you think this? I mean, Jesus has amazing powers. He just healed a man who's been blind his whole life. His following's growing. They see Jesus sitting on the throne and all is going to be glorious in Israel like the glory days of old. A better life on earth is what they envision. A better government, Jesus at the top. No Roman taxation, more money in our pockets. Ah, Jesus will heal the sick. A better life on earth is their vision. Friends, this is the prosperity gospel. And this pastor, Joel, will not preach it. And if I ever do, you can chuck me out on the street. Don't settle for the prosperity gospel. Don't buy a gospel 
promising a heavenly version, a heaven that is, let's say it again, don't buy a gospel promising a heaven that is only a slightly better version of this earthly life. Don't buy into a gospel that is only a slightly better version of this life. Jesus offers us something infinitely better than any earthly vision of heaven you might have. That's what the parable reveals. Verse 12, He said, therefore, a noblesman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. I have to step back for just a minute because this Jericho audience will be making a connection that you and I are going to miss. You see here in Jericho, there's actually a palace down the road built by a ruler named Archelaus. And after his father, Herod the Great, died, Archelaus wanted to be the new king in this area. And he had to go to Rome to receive the kingdom, to receive the power. Now the Jews hated the idea of Archelaus being king because he was a cruel leader. So they sent a delegation following him to Rome, asking that he not be given power to reign in Jerusalem. Archelaus would command the slaughter of 3,000 Jews at Passover. I'll leave you to research that history on your own if you want more. I share it so that you'll see how Jesus is actually getting this audience's attention with a very familiar story. And he is contrasting how his lordship is far better than any lordship of anyone else, any earthly lord. Because Jesus, you see, he is the better noblesman. And he's about to storm the beaches in Normandy to save his people. See, Jesus is going to Jerusalem where he's going to face religious leaders who do not want, them, not want him to reign over them. And a delegation will then go to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and asked to have Jesus put to death. And dying on the cross is God's plan all along. This is God's strategy. The cross is actually the vehicle that will send Jesus to the farthest of countries, the land of death. And there Jesus will gain new authority through his resurrection. But his return to bring in that kingdom is not going to be immediate. We're still waiting. Why not, though? Why doesn't Jesus, after the resurrection, put an end to evil, bring in the kingdom? Because he loves you, my friends. Because he loves you. Because the plan is not merely for his disciples to be saved, but for the disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, even the wilds of Indiana. Think about how far away we are. To bring freedom to those in enemy-occupied territories throughout the globe. Jesus is saying, D-Day is about to take place, but V-Day is a long way off. The kingdom of God is not immediate. That's why we have the giving of the ten minas to the ten servants. Each one gets one while he's gone. Each servant is given a mina to make matter in anticipation of a later day when he will return. Now, this parable is different than the parable of, in Matthew 25, the giving of the talents. Try not to confuse them. In Matthew, the point is we're all given different giftings. Some of us have more than others. In Luke, each servant is given the same. 
Each is given one mina, which is like three months' wages. Each is given an equivalent to go out and do business with. So, Joel, what does a mina represent? Well, the fact that they're all given the same thing, it's not a talent. It's not a gifting. I'd suggest to you that it is the word of truth, the same gospel that we have all been given. Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross to conquer sin, death, and the devil. D-Day is the victory that guarantees the glory is coming. And in Luke 24, we'll get there. The risen Jesus is going to show them how this is the fulfillment of everything promised in the Old Testament. Jesus gives them the gospel in Luke 24. You can see him. He's going to his disciples, giving them each a mina. And what happens in Luke's second volume? in Acts, you find the disciples going out and sharing the gospel of the risen Christ with people and we got thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus. And what does Luke write? Check this out. Acts 6, 7 And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Luke writes, as people hear the gospel and become disciples, the word of God increases. See the connection? Acts 12, 24 and the word of God increased and multiplied. And look what we find has happened when Jesus says here in the parable, when the Lord returns, verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him and said, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. We have this scene of the day of the Lord. Notice he is now the Lord. And he returns. And the servants come one by one to give an account with what they did with the mina given them. And the first fellow, he's pretty excited. A thousand percent increase. And by the way, did you notice he credits the mina for the increase? It's not himself. It's the mina that caused the increase. There's yet another reason I think the mina represents, in part, at least the gospel, maybe the godly living as a result of the gospel, living out our faith. The servant receives, received the gospel, received the good news, and while his Lord was gone, he was busy doing spiritual business as was the second servant who also saw a multiplication of his mina, five minas in return. And the Lord says, well done, good servants. You've been faithful in a little, very little. And don't miss this. He does something absolutely incredible. These servants, they've been made substantial gains in their spiritual business. If we're talking monetarily, they've turned like maybe a half year's salary into nearly four combined. Nothing to sneeze at, right? but not very impressive to the Lord of a kingdom. Yet this Lord says to each of them, good servants, I'm giving you major promotions. You get to go from servant of just a little, and I'm going to make you the mayor of Detroit and Indianapolis and Chicago and seven other cities. And you, oh wow, you brought me like a year and a half wage. Uh-huh. I'm going to make you the Lord of New York and the mayor of this city and the mayor... Here's the point. Dear friends, when V-Day comes, when our Lord Jesus comes in all his glory, and you hold out all the gains of your life, all the sacrifices you made, 
no matter how great, how small, all the difficulties you went through, you're going to be so astonished at how the Lord Jesus is going to outgive you in all your life. For everything you gave, every small thing that you gained, God is going to outgive you in ways far and beyond all you could ask for and imagine. This is how loving and generous your Lord is. Those hard things you've done, the times you've spent in prayer on your knees for folks. God, the Lord Jesus, is going to say, well done, good servant. Wow! And he's going to, there's bountiful blessings. The gain you get in glory is going to be so far out of proportion to all you give in this life. You will never regret any sacrifice. You'll never regret any hardship. Anything you did for the sake of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. (laughs) Why wouldn't you want to serve this Lord with all that you've been given as a loan in return for his love for you? And then Jesus tells us about this third fellow. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, for you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. This third fellow shuffles in, puts his hand in his pocket, pulls out his hanky, shakes out his little mina. Here you go, safe and sound. The reason I didn't do any business is because I was afraid of you. You're a severe man, Lord. He essentially says, you you expect blood out of a stone, juice out of a turnip. You ever met Christians like this? They receive the gospel, the good news. They're embarrassed by Jesus. They go to work, they spend time with family, but they never once share their faith. They keep it hidden. They see the sinfulness of others and they think it's so severe the Lord would forbid me to this fun call the faithfulness is a drudgery it's a duty not a delight so they live a low risk spiritual life where they avoid doing sin but they love so little they see V-Day coming they see their unbelieving neighbors around them and they never once warn them about the danger if they don't turn and repent they simply try to be good until Jesus comes to take them to heaven They have no joy in their spiritual life because they don't understand their Lord. The Lord who loves his servants and wants them to trust in him and to be faithful to him. So he could pour out blessings that are far beyond all they could ever ask for or imagine. Unlike the other servants who have one eye and they see the day when Jesus went to the cross for them. The sacrifice that bought them glory set them free from sin and shame so that they can now live lives with meaning and purpose, who understand what this life is for. What's this life for? Living to the glory of God. Trusting that V-Day, because they got their other eye on V-Day, is drawing one day near every day. I'm one day near. I'm one day near. I'm one day closer. They want to be part of that rescue mission because they know their Lord's hearts. They want to take risks and hasten the day, as Peter would say. They see the privilege of being able to participate in the greatest rescue mission in all of human history. Friends, another important question to ask yourself. What comes to mind when you envision your Lord? 
Do you see him as a loving Lord who can't wait to just bless you? Or do you see him as a harsh master keeping you from the things of this life that you think will fulfill you? Today is the day to ask for forgiveness, to repent, and to take up the call to faithfulness. It's not too late. Today is the day. You can turn it around. You can. There's a story of King Richard I of England who was fighting abroad and on his return trip. He got captured by the enemy. And in his absence, his brother John persuaded the Bishop of Lichfield to support his claim to power. You know this from the Robin Hood stories. When Richard does return, when the Lord does return, he actually pardons the bishop for his unfaithfulness on the condition that he would rebuild his cathedral. The bishop repented. The bishop obeyed his Lord. The bishop decided, I'm going to be faithful from this time on. And you know what? There's a glorious church still standing today in England because of it. Who knows what your mind might do if today is the day you see your gracious Lord rightly and you seek to serve him with joy for all the rest of your days. This servant, we see, he sees his Lord wrongly as severe. He refuses to invest. Doesn't get him off the hook because actually the Lord uses his own testimony against him. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might collect it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. The Lord looks at this wicked servant and says, If you thought this low of me, then that belief should at least cause you to sock it in the bank. Gotten me interest, so you didn't stand before me with absolutely nothing to show. I actually think that's pretty gracious. That the Lord would accept the pitiful return of simply socking it in the savings account. I see the returns on my savings account. <laughs> and he said, I would have been happy with that. I think that this guy, if he had just risked it, if he had wasted the whole wad, if he went down to the tracks and said, I'm taking a huge risk and lost it all, the Lord would still have been happy with him. Because he would have invested, he would have been doing the spiritual business. You may be surprised that the Lord takes away the mina and gives it the guy who already has ten. But the Lord is showing that he doesn't want his gospel to go to waste. He's going to give it to the one who he'll invest it. I'm not going to speculate on the fate of this servant's soul. But his life at minimum, ends up in the lost column. And we do then witness the Lord's severity for those who never acknowledged Jesus, their creator who made them, and the world they enjoyed, and then came to earth and died to save them. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, as we saw with the guy before. Verse 27, but for, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Sobering. T.W. Manson says, 
We may be horrified by the fierceness of the conclusion, but beneath the grim imagery is an equally grim fact, the fact that the coming of Jesus to the world puts every man to the test, compels every man to a decision, and that decision is no light matter. It is a matter of life and death. Would you reject the rule of the Lord Jesus to live your life as all that mattered was the day between the dates of your birth and death? As though the world begins and ends with you? Friends, It's always fine to be interrupted by the word of the Lord. Uh, friends, these severe words, these harsh words, let's remember they're coming from the most gracious lips to ever speak on this planet. The Lord Jesus, to whom all men owe their lives, the Lord who entered into our world and from boyhood on was actually about his father's business. Remember Luke chapter 2? He did his father's business, that business of bringing salvation to you and I. And then he himself was slaughtered in our place so that he could bring you into a better kingdom. So I ask you to take this question home with you and to pray, what is your life for? Do you want to make it matter? Well, let's serve our Lord with gladness since we see his resolve to gladly serve and save us. And I want us just to take in this final verse. Consider his passion. Verse 28, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. The D-Day invasion has begun. We'll come back to that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you did not leave us in our sin and misery, but that you saw us in a broken world where we have no more answers than we had from the day of the Garden of Eden when we were cast out. We thank you that you have looked upon us in mercy and in love, and you have showed us the greatest grace in sending our Lord Jesus Christ into our world to seek and save us. We thank you that Lord Jesus, you have spoken to us today, and we pray for your Holy Spirit a new measure that, in fact, we might more and more live mattering lives out of gratitude and thankfulness for all you've done for us. We thank you for the great privilege of participating in what you have done, that you somehow get more glory out of using us and allowing us to be privileged members who are serving you and loving others in the same way you've loved us. Thank you for this. We ask and pray that if there be any of us who still find ourselves in a far country, that you might call us to yourself today graciously. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.